This is the most interesting topic in the room podcast, episode two. This uh, interesting topic for the day is not what I expected to do, but after listening to the first episode, I felt very strongly that uh, we needed to do a world travel follow-up subset talk story. So my friends and I, when we uh, use the term talk story, that means that we are sitting down and sharing some great tales that have occurred in our lives. So we'll uh, do some talking, talk some story. So that's what I'm going to do today. I realize that uh, there's just too many fun additional stories that I really, I just want to share. They're just good. They back up everything that uh, I discussed in the first podcast. I am not going to preach at you. Uh, this is just the essence of what happened and how it went down in different places. I've done a lot of traveling. Um, that's not a uh, that's not something I'm uh, egotistical about, or I'm just putting out there to say, "Hey, I'm better than anybody else." But it's just what's happened. That's the life I've had. So I traveled uh, a bunch as a child uh, with my scuba diving family in the uh, Caribbean, and uh, I have to say that. I didn't really, I wasn't really present uh, in the sense of being in myself, fully uh, aware of who I was and and being grounded as a person. I was just a kid, very uh, insecure and uh, uh, self-directed kid. I think as many kids are, uh, just fixated on my own sense of uh, inadequacy and all the pain, man. You just don't understand, man. Uh, yeah. So whatever happened during those trips, I kind of missed, uh, I think, some important pieces, uh, experiences, uh, but that's just the way it rolls. So it's not really until uh, college that I'm starting to be present and uh, experience some things and see some larger contexts and uh, just find uh, find other people interesting and other things interesting, not being so in my head and so about me. Yes. So this first story that was very interesting, it's a cultural story, uh, Celebrate the Differences. Uh, I was in uh, Mexico, Mexico City. It was for a uh, study abroad class in college, documentary filmmaking with video cameras, so documentary video making. <clears throat> um, it was, it, it's kind of an odd thing, uh, being, it, this was in the 1990s, just to give away my time periods, and, uh, we had these, at the time, high-end professional cameras, maybe five or six between the entire group, and we were split into groups, and we'd wander off and uh, film, and the intent was just to do raw filming, and if you had a focus that you were trying to work on, then the professors encouraged that and tried to help guide that a bit, and at the end, if you had enough footage that you could edit together a piece, 
then that was fantastic. But it was pretty, uh, pretty open. The professors were an interesting lot. Um, and I'm not naming any names, but it was a very, uh, very interesting crew. Um, had some East Coast, had some hippie, ex-hippie, had, some, you know, had all, all baby boomer all the time. Very interesting crowd. And uh, a part of that was one night uh, our two uh, teachers took the group out for uh, a little fun session. No cameras. We went, we were in Mexico City. We went to a, a square. It was cobblestone uh, with uh, trees and uh, you would call them planters. Uh, so these big square planters spread across this gigantic cobblestone square and there's trees planted in them. So it's kind of it divides up the square a bit. And then there are buildings running along three sides of the square, and the, the fourth side is open. Inside the square, we get there evening time. Just as it's getting dark, all these mariachi bands appear or assemble, and they're all over the square. And as a teacher said, pay attention to uh, what's going to happen. You're going to see locals come pay a mariachi band they're gonna play their favorite songs and they're gonna cry and carry on and it's gonna be a very interesting thing you've never seen anything like it and so i was watching this one group uh, a family came up to a mariachi band and it was an older gentleman um and a younger gentleman i would say he's probably his son and then the rest of the family trailing you know behind they're just kind of there um and the older gentleman paid the mariachi band some money and they pulled out a, a fifth a full bottle of tequila and the older gentleman proceeded to hammer on that bottle just start drinking it and uh the younger guy with him was encouraging him and he was drinking off the bottle and and he drank really fast and between the two of them very quickly uh there was about probably a quarter of the bottle left and the younger gentleman had definitely drank much less but didn't really matter uh and this old man as the mariachi band played he was shouting and singing along and crying and, this, you know, huge emotional release was going on. I didn't understand what was happening other than I could see that uh, this is exactly what the what our teacher had said was going to happen. Um, I didn't realize the tequila was going to be a main part of it, but it was incredible. There was this giant cathartic release occurring and... Uh, went through a number of songs and uh, eventually they uh, you know started to kind of wander off uh, the two gentlemen drunk gentlemen in each other's arms and the rest of the family you know just kind of there and making I'm assuming making sure they were safe um, but I don't I didn't really understand it other than you know makes you wonder what were the songs that this gentleman was playing and what was uh, it bringing up for him 
I would imagine, you know, I could just imagine that his wife had passed. And so it was about that or, you know, friends that had passed or just uh, the, the sorrow of life or the joy of life. And, and, and that's what was happening in the square. I don't know if that happened every night, but it wasn't the only group doing that. Other, the tequila part wasn't across the board. Uh, not every group that was coming up and having the mariachis play their favorite songs were doing that. And, you know, they were singing along or dancing and it was always a family. But there was also this other piece where, you know, pull out the tequila and just slam it down and have this deeply uh, emotional experience. I don't know if they really remember it the next day, but but that was interesting. And then um, so we watched that for a little while. And then the the professor said, hey, come on, we're going to we're going to go into uh, one of these bars. So this square is known for its mariachi bands. And if you're a really good mariachi band playing out in the square, at some point you may be able to get into one of the bars, which the buildings uh, surrounding the three sides of the square are all bars, and they're mariachi bars. So if you you know, have the money, you can get into one of these mariachi bars and go in and sit and order drinks, and mariachi band comes on stage and plays and we went in there with the teachers and uh, they, so now I believe we were all of age in the United States, 21, maybe, I don't know. In Mexico, it didn't matter. I believe 18 was the drinking age. So uh, we sat down and the professors uh, bought a couple rounds for everyone. And what you got was uh, you'd get four shots of Tabasco and four shots of tequila and I'd never seen this before, um, and you were supposed to shoot the tobacco and then shoot the tequila, and it would effectively nullify the strong flavor of the tequila, I guess. I, I don't really know, but it was uh, basically impossible to sh- do an entire shot of Tabasco, I found, um, but it did mix well, the two, you know, you kind of have them. Uh, this was a little bit before I, I knew more about tequila and realized that tequila really, when tequila is good, you really don't need to shoot that. You know, we have this tendency in the U.S. to just you get liquor, especially young people. Just We're just going to get drunk. Uh, we're going to drink it fast. We're going to shoot it. And uh, tequila tastes terrible. It's just terrible stuff. It's all bad. But the reality is good tequila is fantastically tasting, fantastic tasting. And you should enjoy that and savor it. You know, you can sip tequila the just as well as you could sip a good bourbon or scotch. Uh, but in this case, we weren't doing that. But it was very interesting. You know, we sat and went through a number of rounds with this and then the music was better. Uh, you know, the band was better than the bands out in the, in the square. And then uh, we all got our our tequila on and then we left and the teachers basically said all right good luck getting back to the hotel we're going to this uh private apartment that we have and got a taxi and split and then set us loose in the city and that might not have been the best choice that they made but we all survived and no one got hurt but that was an interesting thing that uh 
it's a great, interesting memory, and uh, I always wondered about what exactly was happening with that family. Another interesting story. Talk story. So Thailand, the trip to Thailand that I took, the very first one, the three-week trip. Oh, my. You know, it's uh, it's an interesting thing, the timing of that. Uh, we were there in 2004, 2005, three weeks. Oh, it was fell over Christmas and New Year's. And it just so happened to be when the tsunami hit. If you, any of you remember the, the Andaman Sea tsunami, the Indian Ocean tsunami that uh, killed hundreds of thousands of people. We were in Bangkok uh, after having traveled up to Chiang Mai, and our friends had been to Thailand previously, so they had been to the Gulf of Thailand, which is on the east east side of this very huge peninsula that uh, divides uh, it's it divides. The Gulf of Thailand from the Andaman Ocean, the Andaman Sea. So on the west side is the Andaman Sea, and on the east side of this giant peninsula is the Gulf of Thailand. And in the Gulf of Thailand, there are a number of islands, and one of them is an island called Koh Tao. And my friends had been there and loved it and had this really lovely uh, bungalow that they knew about. So we were in. Bangkok and discussing, oh, do you want to go? We've been to this place. It's really great. But, the, you know, this is the first time, your first time in the country. Do you want to go over to Phuket, go to the Andaman, get on the beach, you know? And so there was a discussion in my mind. I've always said this in my, my sense of the discussion. I never once felt any desire to go to Phuket and go to the Andaman side. I really wanted to go see what my friends had seen. I really wanted to go to Koh Tao, and I never even considered it to be an option to not do that. But um, as I have discussed with uh, these folks afterwards, you know, over a number of years, there was a point where, you know, as a group, there wasn't a clear decision, and there was a push to go over to Phuket and be over on that side. Now that all being said, this is just before Christmas. We we're going to we wanted to spend Christmas on the beach. <laughs> so we decided to just go to Koh Tao and be in the Gulf of Thailand and go where uh, my friends had been before. And you know it was kind of a known quantity for them, but it was also you know this fantastic place. And overall, yes, it was a tremendous place. It was incredible. Uh, so incredible that on the second trip, uh, went back and made sure that the end of the seven-month trip was a two-week stint on that beach on Kotal. Uh, so, we go to Kotal. And we're emailing. That's how uh, we're in touch with our families. We email, uh, you know, we're having a lovely time. Uh, Christmas is tomorrow and we will be on the beach in the morning and spend the entire day on the beach so we did all that and it was just idyllic uh, this particular bungalow 
when you get to Kotal, there's a main town, a main village, and then you can catch a little taxi down to the south end of the island to another village, and then you walk along the coast for, I don't know, maybe a quarter mile or so outside of the village, and it's a, it's a path, and as you walk the path, there are a number of bungalows uh, and businesses and restaurants through there until you get to this one bungalow that was incredible, just right on the right on the water. There was a steep hillside, and these uh, cabin bungalows were built up this steep hillside, and, you know, the higher you got, the better the view got, and it was just unbelievable. It was gorgeous. And we spent our time there, had Christmas dinner, you know, Christmas Day, Christmas dinner, all the stuff, Christmas Eve, it was really great. And then uh, the next morning, it was an interesting thing. In the morning, I just remember hearing some travelers who were staying there kind of whispering amongst themselves, and and I'm, I'm not even listening, but I hear the word tsunami, and I don't really think about it. <clears throat> and then as time goes on in the day, I hear it again. I remember standing with uh with my travel companions and uh some travelers nearby were talking and clearly saying the, the word tsunami and something's going on and we all had a realization together that we've been hearing people talking about a tsunami uh all separately we've heard this and so something's happened but the thai are not letting anything on there's no there's zero and and I must say this, there is no, um, you know, we're on a beach, there's no, um, you know, like, the electricity is, is, is wired in over this hillside, uh, there's no phones, there's no internet, you know, we're, we're completely cut off and we're in this idyllic place. So we decide we need to go check the internet. In order to do that, you have to walk the quarter mile back to the nearest village and go to the internet uh, room and pay money and, you know, get on the internet. So we get back uh, and check the internet, and it's the day after the tsunami. And the very, you know, at that moment, I think that the, the tally they had was 25,000 killed, which in... in in uh, Indonesia, and that uh, Thailand had been affected. Um, and then go to the email accounts. We open our email accounts, and there's like a hundred e- desperate emails that uh, all of our families and friends have been sending us, and we're not responding, and people are despairing, and they all think that we are dead. Because in the United States, they watched the tsunami happen on TV, and it's on the beach in Thailand, and they had no sense of where we were in relation to it. And it was a very strange experience because we had no, we had no contact emotionally whatsoever at that point at all with chaos and destruction and death and and all the stuff that happened it's probably about a hundred miles from where we were across the water and then across this big peninsula to the west side where the waves hit 
and we were uh, we were not intentionally dismissive of our friends and family's concerns, uh, but we couldn't relate to where they were coming from and what they had seen. We had no sense. Uh, so we're, you know, hey, we're fine. It's all good. We're having a great time. <laughs> oh, and people were really unhappy with us and upset, and um, but happy that we were alive. Uh, but there was a big push. Uh, people were emailing, get out. You got to get out. It's dangerous. You have to leave. There's going to be disease. It's going to be chaos. And we spent some time hashing it out over the, the day and um, and you know got a lot more information about what was happening locally and we realized that the way that you get from where we were back to Bangkok you have to take a boat to the peninsula and then you take a train or a bus north up to Bangkok now all the people that had been affected on the west side of that peninsula they were all the survivors, uh, they were doing the same thing. In order to get out, you have to get to a train, you you know, or a plane, but you get to a train or a bus, and you get you go north on this peninsula. And we felt, since we were safe, there was nothing happening where we were, that it would be selfish of us to throw ourselves into the into the throng and take up valuable space on transport, getting survivors out. Uh, from the west side of that peninsula and up into Bangkok. So we just stayed where we were and finished our, our vacation. And uh, it was a, a somber experience after that. But, uh, you know, we just were grateful for our good fortune. We were grateful for our lives and what, what we were experiencing. We were horrified for everyone who were doing the same thing we were doing. And, you know... Just that morning, here comes this wave, and uh, and it all ended so badly for so many. Um, when we got back up to Bangkok, when we did go back up, it was a very somber scene up there. There were a lot of travelers' uh, bandages. You know, we saw some folks with bandages and uh, crutches. There was a, a, an improvised... There's a big barricade that had been put up, and it was an improvised wall, people posting photos of missing people, and you know, we went over there and walked by that, and uh, it, was, it was just devastating. It was just a devastating thing, and so we had this miraculous, powerful experience of... Uh, the, going to this place and and being you know, blown open and having this incredible experience in the midst of one of the greatest disasters that's happened in uh, in our definitely in our modern history. Very strange, but it uh, it puts things in perspective. And one of the things that put it in perspective uh, was if are you happy with what you're doing with your life? is your job uh, fulfilling? And what is the point of your life uh, when it could be snuffed out at any moment doing, you know, what, what you were doing, what you were love, what you love doing, just vacationing. Um, so it was a big spur for this seven month trip that occurred afterwards, which actually occurred that same year. 
So this was three weeks, 2004, 2005, and 2000, September 2005, the seven-month trip started, and it was 2005, 2006. So it was immediate, and it was just the circumstances. There happened to be the ability financially at that moment to, to pull this off, and I, before and since, have not seen that uh, opportunity. So it was a good thing to have taken it at the time, and... Let me just say that uh, I am very, very grateful that I had the experience with the tsunami that I did, which was basically not having the experience with the tsunami, but it uh, has offered a, a very clear and concise point in life that says, you know, this could have been, the your decision could have led you to this other place, and that would have been a disaster. And you might not be here. So, very grateful, <laughs> as you can tell. So, I will hold that thought. I will come back. Uh, I, I've kind of been running a little chronologically through the tales. And uh, there's more, uh, I have more thoughts on the tsunami because I wind up going back to Thailand a year later, as I just stated. And there will be more 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 to think about but i would do want to there's a couple things that were on the this three-week trip post tsunami on kotal that uh were very interesting and i do want to offer those up for the uh the the good of the order uh, right well first let me give you this lead in there was a gentleman staying at the bungalows uh, on Kotao, and uh, he's uh, affectionately known as Canadian Steve. Um, I think he was probably in his late 40s uh, at the time, um, and, um, I, you know, I didn't particularly connect with him. Uh, and I know that the folks in my uh, traveling group didn't didn't dig him either. He uh, he stood out. He was older than everyone else, and he he talked a lot of story, but it all seemed to be pretty um, pretty shiny, you know. Like it didn't seem very real. He didn't seem very real. That's just the bottom line. And he had collected a little entourage of younger people around him, one young woman in particular, who hung on his every word. And he was really feeling good about that and good about himself. And one of the things I noticed in traveling to Asia, uh, there are some interesting folks who are traveling uh, deeper into the world. And uh, this guy fit the bill. He 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 seemed to be displaced in a sense. Like he didn't. My sense of him was that he didn't really. He wasn't a confident person, and I'm not sure if he was running from something, avoiding something. But um, he was just out there, and he definitely seemed to be creating a persona to fit whatever situation he was in in order to gain the affection of those around him. But from my point of view, he was obnoxious and annoying. And that that's fine. I just didn't hang out with that guy, and that was fine. 
But what was interesting was after the tsunami happened, that day that we found out about the tsunami, it pretty much broke across everyone. All the travelers knew it became a point of discussion uh, and it was no longer being whispered. And that evening, there was a Canadian Steve was going around telling everybody, hey, we're going to have uh, some Buddhist, we're going to have the local Buddhist monks out and they're going to do a Buddhist ceremony for the victims of the tsunami. Okay, that sounds amazing. So he's running around promoting this thing and uh, we have some dinner that evening and um, our hosts of the bungalows are, uh, they've gotten themselves all you know cleaned up and because the monks are coming, I mean, that's a big deal uh, for them. And at, uh, at uh, sunset, the monks come streaming in with their, their robes and uh, they, uh, um, they <laughs> interact with Steve a little bit. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's interesting. I wasn't really paying too much attention, but um he uh they he has created a space in the sand on the beach and um it he has uh he has a buddha that he has gotten uh, a hold of and uh he has that sitting i believe he had dug a like a he had dug a circle out in the sand and uh you know dug at this little moat essentially and then on the island in the middle, he had placed the Buddha and uh, the monks all sit down and, um, you know, the head, the head monk, he's an older gentleman and, and he's, he's the real deal. You know, I mean, he's, uh, he's the real deal. And it was pretty obvious that he saw through Canadian Steve, like, as, as soon as he laid eyes on him. So... I mean, one of the things I know that had happened was Steve had gone into uh, town, gone to the monastery, and 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 got this thing set up. However, he got it set up, and uh, so the monks sit down, and the old the the head monk um, sort of grouchily gestures toward the Buddha and says something. One of the other monks, gra- you know, grabs the Buddha and um, brings it next to them and puts it on a table and or you know organizes it. The way it should be and then um i you know i i I, somebody asked me are you coming over because i wasn't going to participate but i was like all right yeah and i come over and and uh, everyone's sitting uh kind of in an oblong you know like a circle and uh most everybody's in shorts i mean we're at the beach and this was very sudden and nobody's telling us any rules um, and sit down, and so the the head monk has gotten gruff about the placement of the Buddha, and then uh, he said something um, kind of uh, grouchily in Thai and gestured, and uh, it seemed really obvious to me uh, the the way that it was directed that he was he was making a statement about the disrespectful uh, tire. That we were in um, having your legs exposed like you don't go into a temple in shorts so you wouldn't I would assume necessarily be at a ceremony 
in shorts. <laughs> so I, I, got, I felt that really quickly. I, I sort of uh, turned my legs around away from the monks and, you know, and just kind of, I just kind of put my head down and was embarrassed. Actually, I'm starting to get embarrassed now. I was like, oh man. Uh, the, so in Thailand, the tourists are called Falong. And, uh, you know, here I'm like, oh, here I'm Falong, Falong in shorts. Oh, what are we doing? I don't know what I'm doing. Anyway, but so then Steve starts to talk. He starts to give a speech and it's rambling. And it's kind of this sort of uh, new age take on Buddhism uh, that he's he's espousing and and talking about. I don't know. He's just. He's just talking and talking and talking and none of it has any point. And the monk, the head monk sort of, uh, you know, he like, he, he cuts him off. He's like, ah, <laughs> and, uh, you be quiet, <laughs> you know, and just cuts him off and cuts it, cuts it, cuts it short. And, uh, it was the first moment that I saw, uh, Canadian Steve, uh, so he, the the air came out of him very you know, quickly at that moment where I was like whoa you know uh this guy's not buying my my game not buying what i'm selling so then the monks they do uh it was probably 20 minutes 15 20 minutes it's uh, it was chanting it, it was powerful uh it definitely carried you away and I don't know anything about any of it and that was the other thing uh, the Falong don't know anything about what's going on but it was a it was definitely a powerful experience and uh, and they finish they just you know that this chanting finishes and they they do whatever they they do and and not uh, and it's silent for like 15 seconds and then the head monk turns to Canadian Steve and says, you pay now. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a really, I, inside, I just started laughing. I was like, wow, that is amazing. I mean, the, the monks did what they needed to do. Um, and it was a, a true uh, religious experience. But they were there for the money. And, you know, Steve was going to pay whatever he was going to pay. And it, it was, there was no night, there were no niceties about this where it would be like, okay, well, we'll go over here and, you know, you pay up and all that. It was like, you pay now. <laughs> and, and the, the wind just dropped completely out of Canadian Steve's sails. That was, uh, it, it was kind of sad because the next day he packed up and left. I mean, it, it was really obvious that he, he'd been putting on a show and um, and he just wasn't an, uh, he wasn't being true to himself is ultimately what it was, not being authentic. So that's the that's the story of Canadian Steve. The other thing I want to relay is very interesting. New Year's Eve occurred uh, there, and we went uh, to the bar next door. There was a bar next door that played club music every evening and it was just thumping you know i mean loud to a big speaker and it's just thumping club music and it was very incongruous it was very strange and 
But there were these posters that had been uh, popping up all over the south end of the island um, for the small god party on New Year's Eve at this bar. Now, it's been, there is no answer to this question. What exactly is a small god party? I don't know. And we didn't know, but I can tell you that it was enough that we were going to go and find out. <laughs> now, I don't, I can't really say that uh, the, the poster and the, and the name, that was enough. You know, the, whatever the event was could never live up to that. Uh, so we go over there for New Year's and... Uh, you know, we're, I mean, we're kind of somber uh, post tsunami. It's more multiple, you know, it's many, it's a few more days after. And, um, the, I mean, the weather's just been gorgeous. Everything's pristine. It's such a strange schism between knowing what had happened and where we were. But, uh, so anyway, we go to the bar and the club music's pounding. It's dark. Uh, you can't really see people too well. It's outside. It's right on the water, and it's a small little place, uh, just a small bar. But what was this was what was the the most interesting things, one of the most salient things that uh, I remember from that trip. As uh, as the clock struck midnight, we, my friends and I, we did what we would normally do. Now let me just say, when I was young, uh, a a New Year's party would be you get there, start drinking, you get to midnight, you go crazy, the drinking goes off the edge, you're up till God knows when, and then New Year's Day, you're just devastated, and there's you're wondering why you did any of that and what the point was. As I got older and my friendships deepened, that New Year's started to become more about um, observing the, you know, what what had happened in the pre- previous year, what was good. Uh, we would talk about our, uh, you know, any family members that had passed and give honor to uh, the people that mattered to us, and uh, and lots of hugs and love and expressions, you know, of how important our friendships are to one another and just a moment to reflect. So the, you know, so this is New Year's, but this is Western New Year's. Thai New Year's is a different thing. Uh, they're throwing this party for the, the Falong, for the foreigners. And uh, there's only a few people there, really. There's some Thai people there and there's a few Falong. And we're sitting at the bar, and uh, it's str- the clock strikes midnight. And um, my friends and I, we we get up and we immediately start to hug one another, and talk to each other as well as we could with the thumping music. Um, you know how how much we meant to one another, and how important it was to be where we were at that moment, and. Uh, that we were alive, that, you know, we were grateful for everything that we had. And it was amazing as that was happening, I, I quickly realized that every Thai person in that bar had stopped dead and were staring at us, kind of open-mouthed, staring at us. And all of a sudden, they all got really happy 
and started giving us hugs and hugging each other and everybody's hugging and there was like such this outpouring all of a sudden and uh, I realized that uh, they they because it's not their holiday and I'm assuming that what they'd seen in the past was people you know cheering and drinking and all this stuff but for us to step up and and get real all of a sudden <laughs> and start showing love for one another. Uh, they were really into that. That they connected with. And uh, there was a bit of a, that. I mean, that was a cultural exchange that occurred. That was something that we brought to the table that was just normal and spontaneous for us. And uh, and it really, it, it was a beautiful moment. And I really uh, have a warm, fond memory of that to know that we, we shared something real of our culture with with the Thai people. So with that, let's let's move on. So uh, I'm just going to run down here a few things from the, the bigger trip, the uh, seven month voyage, because uh, I wrote down a, a straight line of from place to place, you know, landing in Bangkok just for this it was four months landing in Bangkok and just uh, from place to place that uh, I went and it wound up being a page which is kind of overwhelming to realize but uh, uh, it was all over all over and in Thailand I was all, we were in Thailand and then we were in Laos and then we were back into Thailand and then back to Laos and then back to Thailand, and then into Cambodia, and then back to Laos, and then back to Thailand. It was crazy, and crazy good, crazy good. So, one of the interesting things, so get into Bangkok and go straight to Chiang Mai and hang out, and uh, then we were going to work our way south, um, and did so about halfway back to Bangkok, went to Sukhothai, and then had a, an epiphany of needing to take this trip that our friends who had uh, guided us into Southeast Asia originally had taken uh, maybe the year before. You could go uh, on the Mekong River, a two-day riverboat, to uh, Long Prabang, the, royal, the ancient royal capital of Laos. So just decided to do that. So it was like turn tail, head back up to Chiang Mai. You go through this process. Got to get uh, the visas and all this stuff for getting into Laos and do that thing that you're not supposed to do. But uh, we did it a number of times in Thailand. Uh, go to your, basically go to your guest house owner who uh, I knew and trusted and give them your passport, and they send that passport with a, by courier all the way back to Bangkok to get the thing stamped, and it comes all the way back to you into your hands. And you're not, you, you know, don't ever let your passport leave your vicinity. Yeah, well, wanted to go to Long Prabang, so there you go. Passport, bye-bye. But it came back. So go from Chiang Mai up to a town in the northeast called Chiang Kong, and it's right on the river, and you look across the river, and you're, it's, it's this village on the other side is Laos. And got to make that crossing. 
that night was crazy. We went to a place that our friends had recommended, uh, and I can't remember the name of it now, but this gentleman had a Mexican restaurant. He was Thai. He had a Mexican restaurant up in the northern, northeasternmost part of Thailand. Obviously, just because travelers, you know, were catering to the catering to the travelers and had some mexican food and it was it was really good not the best mexican food i've ever had but it was it was a mind blower as the sun is setting over the mekong river in the middle of southeast asia i'm sitting having mexican food made by thai people who had never been to mexico and never had mexican food but just knew that the travelers would eat it and they would want it and so I asked this guy, you know, how did you, how do you, do you been to Mexico? How do you make this? He said, no, no, I've uh, never been to Mexico. Just, just looked recipes up in magazines. <laughs> and he built a restaurant around it and it was good. <clears throat> and then of course, as travelers come through, you know, he's asking questions and tweaking his, tweaking his recipes and getting it, you know, more quote unquote authentic, but it was very cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then we crossed the river into this village and uh and and i don't remember the clear details anymore but we wind up getting onto a ferry boat uh for the first day's voyage which was probably six or seven hours long and it was a a boat that had uh just board seating along the sides and we're all crammed in there and the uh, the engine compartment was not separated whatsoever, so the noise from this thing was unbelievable. It was just shocking how loud it was. You know, six seven hours of just eardrum pounding. You can't talk, and you're in the middle of the Mekong uh, in the jungle. I mean, it was just full on jungle. I have no idea, you know, if there are villages or path, pathways where we, you know, around us that we couldn't see. But I can say this, it was solid jungle and um, just pounding this noise. And we're going, saw uh, working elephants on that trip. Uh, that was very interesting. Actual elephants, you know, lifting tree logs and doing doing work. Uh, but very few people didn't see very many people along that and then we get at this village which is the halfway point and it's it's uh dusk and it was a scene there just all these people just you know come with me come with me come with me we're gonna you know you sleep with me and everybody just you just kind of everybody separated and we all went in these different places it was really sketchy. It was so weird. In the middle of nowhere, you don't know anything. And they're just, you know, they just throw you in these places. And then the place we wound up in was just, a, ugh. It was nasty. Nasty. And we were really sketched out about leaving our stuff in the room. And uh, just very untrusting. And I feel like that was a smart move uh to be untrusting because this guy is trying to get us to come out and he wants us to drink and he wants us to he's like you know offering drugs and you know just basically whatever he, this person could sell and potentially put you in a compromising position so it was just like no don't want any of that had a little food and just you know lock the door and went to sleep and it was really 
terrible sleep. It was a really weird place. And the next day, you know, got up and went down and got onto a different ferry boat, which was had a quiet engine, which was a lovely thing. And uh, wound up talking to this guy that had uh, been uh, friendly with us on the first day. And, you know, hey, how'd you, how'd you sleep? How'd you do this place? He's like, there was no sleep. There was a there was like a, a symphony of little feet under my bed all night. There were rats. There were everybody, except for us, amazingly enough, everybody all night long, wherever they stayed in the village, was kept awake by rats all night long. <laughs> it's just horrendous. This the whole thing is just rats, rats everywhere, rats underneath the beds, rats underneath the bungalows, rats overhead, rats, 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 rats. That was good. And and I didn't see any, and nor was I kept awake by rats. So somehow or other, uh, somehow or other, it did not, uh, it didn't get in the, in the space that I was in. But, you know, just dirty. Everything is just, you know, you just sleeping in your clothes and putting stuff in between you and whatever this other thing, this bed bedding is. It was just disgusting. There's a ride the ride moment. You just, you don't know. And then, uh, you know, this other day, it's Christmas day actually now and all the way into Long Prabang. And it was a really incredible experience uh, overall, uh, seeing all that jungle and being on the river for two whole days and seeing people who live along the river and they're working, you know, doing what they're doing. And I believe we stopped uh, once or twice, and uh, we were able to buy food and, and drink and uh, just get into Long Prabang. And Long Prabang is a lovely place, absolutely fantastic. The, the historical royal capital uh, with all the, the, the pagoda and uh, you know, palace glory that goes with that. It was a very, very fantastic place to be. Uh, Went from Long Prabang down, going down to Vincennes, stopped at a place called Vang Bang, which was known as a, a traveler party spot. It's right on a river, and uh, you can rent inner tubes and float the river. And it was a good place to stop between uh, Long Prabang and Vincennes. One, one interesting thing, though, was from Long Prabang, you get on a bus. And you have to go over this uh, series of mountains. <clears throat> and it's through the Hmong country, the Hmong tribal group. And they have had, they'd had a long uh, uh, war going against the government. And the Hmong, for those that don't know it, they were the people that uh, the U.S. was funding in Laos during the Vietnam War. We, we funded them and provided them weapons, and, you know, they were our, our counterbalance to the communist government in Laos. And then when uh, we left, we left them high and dry in a major way, and the Laos communist government came in and basically just crushed them. But they had this low-grade insurrection going on um since vietnam war right up to the point that i was there in the early 2000s mid 2000s so i'd been told that by our friends who'd been on this uh, journey that you know there's you're gonna go through mong country and it's gonna be fine but there's some weird things that might happen because they'd had the experience where they're on the bus and they're the bus is slowing down and and uh the the there's a helper 
who leans out the window, slows down. There's a guy on the side of the road with an AK-47, and they slow the bus down and throw like two or three boxes of cigarettes out to this guy, and then they keep going. And then, you know, they went by and they said, well, that that was the payoff. We're, uh, we're not going to be shot up today. Because it had happened, uh, I believe, just before they had gone, there had been an instance of one of these uh, buses, just a bus, but it's all tourists, uh, got stopped and shot up the shot up the bus and killed everybody on there. The Hmong did. So, <laughs> ride the ride. There you go. Uh, got to get from place to place and didn't really think it would happen to us. So, you know, and things had cooled down a whole lot since then. And so our friends had had their little payoff moment. We get going on the bus, and there's the driver, and there's a guy sitting up uh, next to the driver. And then there was a guy, I was toward the back of the bus, there was a guy sitting in the aisle in the back. He's just sitting on this little stool. And we start going up. Uh, the you know, road starts to go up, and you're getting up in the mountains. And uh, I just kind of, I'm looking around, and I corner my eye, I see, I see something. I uh, turn around, and the guy who's been sitting there, you know, this nice guy, young guy sitting there he suddenly got an ak-47 in his hands or sitting between his legs i'm like whoa look at that and i look up front and the guy up front the helper guy up front he's got an ak-47 so suddenly now we've got machine guns on the, on the bus that we didn't know were there and we're driving and there's a certain amount of tension now on the bus because everybody's aware of this um and the driver was driving extra fast and we're going, it's all switchbacks and a bus with a small road and, you know, up and down mountains going fast. <laughs> so, you know, probably we were more in danger of driving off the road and crashing to death uh, than we were being shot by Hmong insurgents. But there you go. We made it. And the other thing, so we get to Vong Vieng uh, safely. And this is a, a tale of you know, that tourist thing that happens, the pressure of tourism and people wanting to make money, we, we go, I mean, I love to float a river on an inner tube. I think it's a great, fun, relaxing thing to do. And having a beer along the way is a great thing. So we stopped because we knew that was there and we're going to just participate in that. What I didn't know was what it was going to be like. I mean, we, we get out to the entry point and, you know, we, I think we've already rented the tubes. So we're there and start flowing down the river. And within a quarter mile, you come upon these out little outposts on the other side of the river. And, you know, guys are waving you in, trying to get you to come in. And they're selling food and they're selling booze and, you know, all this stuff. But they've got gigantic speakers like, Marshall stack speakers and they're just pounding all this music out really loud and there's rope swings and there's all these weird things and people are you know it's all tourists they're all just getting off their uh, their tubes and getting in these places and drinking a whole bunch and and there were drugs you know I mean they they it was it was wild west scene there whatever you wanted we got it so these people are doing whatever. These tourists are, you know, doing whatever. Australians. <laughs> I'm calling you out, Australians. I saw some I saw some party animals, and they all had Australian accents. 
and they're swinging rope swings and you know i know people had been like killed and <laughs> people had been broken backs and all this stuff and i'm just looking at some of the stuff just thinking you're getting hammered and you're doing that really okay we're in the middle of nowhere it's your your life your body but it you know as we're as we're floating it really started to make me feel uncomfortable like what i'm doing is now even though i'm not participating just my presence is contributing to the sense that this is what the locals need to do to make money it had nothing to do with their culture it was like the opposite of their culture uh, super loud rock and roll and drinking and all this crazy activity going on it just didn't really sit well with me and uh, I know that in the past few years, the the authorities have really cracked down hard on that because they recognize that the the village itself was being completely eradicated as far as a, a traditional uh, life and the culture was just being smashed by all these bars in town and they're playing, you know, they got TV playing constantly and people are smoking pot and they're drinking and it's just, you know, it's just young young travelers just bringing their culture with them and doing that party scene and uh, after a couple days really wanted to get out of there really did not feel feel comfortable with that but uh, the river was beautiful and the Karst Mountains there were gorgeous and it was a tremendous thing to do floating that river but uh, I really do step back and have questions about that uh, activity having engaged in that I'm glad I didn't go down the party route, but uh, just just putting the money in that didn't feel right afterwards. So didn't really know what Vang Biang was like. All I know is that Vang Biang was not what it used to be. <laughs> oh my! Mm, I remember having a beer in Vientiane along the river during a sunset. Uh, the Mekong again, just amazing. <sighs> The irony of the sunsets in Southeast Asia is that there's so much pollution in the air that it really makes for beautiful sunsets. These deep red oranges spread across the sky. Uh, But sitting there and being served a beer, and this gentleman was serving the beer, and he asked where we were from. And uh, and he just kind of sheepishly say, United States, ah, (laughs) feeling bad because my country did bad things here. And it was amazing. His his whole physical posture, everything about him changed and his look on his face. He was so unhappy that he was serving beer to Americans. He was so unhappy. Uh, that was that was a very clear experience. I mean, I knew being there that my nationality and my presence would be could be controversial and i'm assuming this guy had been ex-military or something i mean he he had he had blood on the table you could see it he was not it it displeased him to to great degree to be serving to be serving me i felt bad for that but you know i i was trying to do my best as an ambassador for the better parts of my culture so that was interesting one of the things that happened uh, with uh, the trip was going over to the western side of that great peninsula I was talking about, going to Phuket, going to Kopi Phi uh, Island, and without intention, wound up going to the three 
places that had the highest casualties from the tsunami the previous year. It wasn't intended, but it was really odd how how the trip went there. Phuket uh, didn't spend really any time, too much time in Phuket. Got in, uh, flew in, and uh, spent the night at a funky place that it was a story in and of itself. And then caught a boat out to Kopi P. Um, and didn't really, I just didn't, didn't know enough. I hadn't done, I hadn't watched any videos of the tsunami. I really avoided it. I, I think I, I just wanted to ignore the reality of it. And the fact that I didn't have a negative experience, um, I did not choose to, I did not choose to learn what I probably should have learned before going into these areas. What was odd about Kopi P, Kopi P Don, was that everything was rebuilt and it was just, you know, it was, it was, it had been known as a major party island and it was straight back to party. Um, got to the, this uh, little village that had been just destroyed and what was interesting were the experiences with, particularly with a young man, the the drinking that was going on amongst the Thai was alcoholic drinking. And this was not like, hey, we're trying to get your money. It was just like trauma, PTSD, uh, having lost their families, gone through some unbelievably traumatic experience. And a year later, you know, they're just drinking, which was very unusual. That was not a, in my experience, that is not a normal uh, piece that occurs in Thai culture. Uh, it, it was just very disturbing to see the, the this kind of rage and pain and, and the alcoholism that was uh, a result of it. So the other place that, so we were in Kobe P and spent some time there and had some unique experiences and then uh, went on a scuba diving trip out to the Cimalan Islands. But in order to get there, you go up to a place called Kaulak. And as we were on the dive boat heading out, uh, the dive masters were talking about how, yeah, we were here last year when the tsunami happened and everybody was out on the Cimalans when the wave passed through and everybody kind of knew something happened because this big swell came through, but not the wave you knew it wasn't right and they then um you know they start heading back into shore and it took six hours and get back in and Kalak had been it was all uh the the villages on a bluff up above the water and then it's just kind of like these sheer cliffs and then there's beach and there had been all the guest houses are down on the beach and when that wave came in there, it was just crazy. No one survived. There was like 2,000 people or some of them died right there, 1,200 that died right there. It was just this, the worst possible uh, geological formations with humans placed in the worst, worst possible place they could be. So, you know, the boats get back and there's just debris everywhere and you can't get into shore and there's, you know, it's just a nightmare. It was a nightmare. 
and we you know so we're we're having the dive masters are telling these stories and you could see the horror in their eyes they'd experienced what had happened and you know a year later it's all rebuilt it's very strange and then we went down to a place uh called kamala beach which was phuket area and there was a one up there i think because of a particular guest house that was well known and the guest house was still there the original building but you could see all the buildings surrounding were all brand new everything in this little area had been wiped out it was beach a long uh flat area with a couple roads set down from the main highway uh, so when the water came in there, it just came in uh, and obviously wiped out a huge amount of people. And we wound up not being able to stay in this one guest house, but they took us over to this other place, which was associated <clears throat> and brand new. And the gentleman working the desk there was completely intoxicated. Was absolutely never saw him once that he wasn't completely inebriated. A nice man, a sad man. The 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 look in his eyes is something I'll never forget. He saw things. He lost people. Just the most soul crushing experience. He was not the same. And again, that alcoholism piece that didn't see that in the culture, but it was the it was definitely there as a result of this natural disaster it was a very strange experience somehow it almost felt like a you know the higher power guiding the trip at that point where you were here when this happened but you weren't here and now through no clear uh focused direction of your own you will be taken to the three most damaged areas in the country from the tsunami and see firsthand one year later what the result is it really brought it seriously brought it home in a totally different way and uh, i'm very glad that that occurred because that portion of the trip might not have even happened but it was a very powerful thing and there was definitely like just to sit on those beaches to sit and have a beer and be relaxing and looking out at the water and just thinking how this right here a year ago same thing was happening and the water went out and the water came back and everyone died and i was there and it didn't happen to me so strange but i think uh I have more tales to tell, but we're getting on now. You know, I've always said that this should be a, uh, the dialogues need to be one hour because, you know, I could bore you to death, uh, if we go farther. But I think I have, I have one, one, one small fun thing. I will leave it at, uh, because there are plenty more stories, but this one was just so interesting toward the getting around much farther from where the, the tale is right now. It was uh, up in Laos, in southern Laos, in an area called uh, Sipandan, the 10,000 islands in, in the Mekong. And I believe we were on Dondet, the island of Dondet. And 
uh, happened to be there during a festival, a local festival, and went. We were we were somewhere having food, and the uh, gentleman said, "You come tomorrow. You come tomorrow. Big festival. You come tomorrow." Uh, and so like, all right. And everybody's talking about it for the whole next day. And something was afoot. I didn't really understand what the festival was, but it was a Lao festival of something. And, you know, big drinking, big drinking. So we went back to this place right when it all kind of kicked off and big tents and people are drinking and there's like, there's a, there's a drinking a lot of rice wine and Whatever this one drink was, it was like a, it was a, a rice drink, but it was liquor. It was very strong and uh, having some beers and, you know, just had the fun and, you know, after a couple hours just left and it was really about the locals pulling in all of the tourists to spend their money and get, you know, get drunk and spend as much money as possible and then leave because what was then going to happen was the actual festival the actual party where the Lao people went all night long whatever went down you know I mean I was quite a ways away where I was sleeping but it was you know you could hear it It was big time whatever was going down was huge and the next day went back to this place and got some food and you know and there's the guy saying hey how was how was it last night and we we saw you and then we left and he said, oh, yeah, I woke up in a tree this morning. I was like, what? <laughs> woke up in a tree? What? Yeah, yeah, I wake up in a tree. I uh, don't know how I get there. I uh, I don't remember, but I woke up in a tree. I was on the branch, just asleep in the branch in the tree. <laughs> okay, that's what can happen during a Lao festival apparently every year that thing goes down and that's what happens people people end up in trees the next morning and they don't know how they got there anyway so you you know that's a ride of the ride there are so so many other tales but i just wanted to offer some of that after listening to the first podcast i felt very strongly that uh, i had more to say and some of the most interesting things that there that there are with uh, humans are our stories so talking some story uh, you've got your your per, unique perspective on things and it's good to put it out there and, and share that so I hope that was mildly enjoyable and not painful and I would expect uh, down the road with uh, some of my future guests I already know uh, there will be some travel stories extraordinary going on so there'll be more of that but uh, after this, we'll be departing to new topics. I don't uh, expect to be sitting here telling you more travel stories the next time. So just want to wrap up and say take care of yourself first, as always. You are the one who, uh, you're the only one there for yourself, ultimately. You may have friends and family, and that's an important thing, you know, uh, but you are the one who is in your skull and whatever things have been going on, whatever's happened in your life, you know, you, you know there's blame to be, to be laid here and there. But uh, in the end, it's ultimately on your shoulders to take the time to understand yourself, deal with the pain, 
uh, find some forgiveness inside yourself and start to uh, pick up the pieces and strengthen yourself and be there for you. That doesn't mean be there for you and be selfish. That just means be there for you at an emotional level to become the great person that uh, you actually are and thereby you can give back and do something for others. You need to take the time, be there for yourself, and love it. Love you, man. Dig yourselves. All right. Take care. I will talk to you later. Later.